Well, anyway, it's good to have you all here tonight. We're going to be going through the minor prophets. And, uh, uh, you know, if I have not met you, maybe after class, uh, introduce yourself to me or I'll introduce myself to you. And hopefully we can remember each other's names. But mine's pretty easy. It's Bob. You spell frontwards or backwards the same way. So, if you forget that, Pastor Kent's going to have to counsel you. <laughs> and uh, it'll be the same as Bob's chapter. So, anyway, well, let's pause for a word of prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have when we put our faith in you. Thank you for the new life we have in Christ. I pray that you'll give us desires to understand your word. I pray that as we cover the minor prophets, that uh, we'll see how even this section of the Old Testament has great applicability to us. So we pray for your blessing on our time. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, you should have got a little booklet. Uh, and, or at least something, a handout that'll say minor prophets. Maybe if I take my Bible off, it's a better. It's a giant Bible, that's what it is. Yeah, that'll probably work. It's, it's the nature of these study Bibles, they're pretty weighty. Yeah, You'll see my new one. I've got to exercise my muscles just to keep it yeah. held up. So, anyway, last week we started looking at the minor prophets. We're in the section that I call general information. You can see that on page two. It says general information. We looked at historical information. We started looking at Roman numeral two on page three, the prophet. We initially looked at a definition of a prophet. And we went through a number of biblical texts because I think that's the best way to get a definition. And then we drew some conclusions on page five at the top, second paragraph. In light of our discussion on the definition of prophet, we can define a prophet as one who is God's spokesman. As such, he is called by God. Okay. Should I pause here? A call for the prophets, in most cases, involves God directly speaking to them. Now, we need to make a difference. A lot of times we talk about pastors being called. Uh, I was ordained, I pastored for three years. And, but we don't mean the same thing by a call. Generally, what, what a pastor means by that is that, you know, they're growing Christians, they got a desire. Somebody sees they have the gifts for the ministry, the local assembly. So there's a subjective and objective side. But no pastors that I know who are theologically solid have a direct call from God. So I say that because sometimes people actually think God funnels something down the pastor can't. That's not the way it works, friends. God works. He, in hindsight, you can say God's hand was on him. 
But it's not Paul in the same sense as the prophet. God did actually speak to him. In our case, he didn't. He spoke to his word. Like in my case, I saw I was converted when I was in college. Um, I had great desires to understand the Bible. I started studying it. I was involved in Bible studies. I was, had a growing desire to go into ministry. I wasn't sure where. And I had the gifts that were recognized by others. Because if, not, if other people don't see it who are objective, then more than likely, you need to go plant corn or something. <laughs> because that's just not the way it works. So I'm trying to discriminate between what they had and what we have. But nonetheless, God did, in his foreordination, set apart pastors and teachers. The question is, is how he specifically called them. Was it direct? Or is he using other things, such as spiritual growth, their uh, abilities to teach the word, their desires, their growing in, uh, as far as obedience and things like that. And that person, we could say, in that sense, is called. But I usually don't, I don't use, I never describe myself as being called. I say God's led me, in his providence I see it, but you know, I do remember when I was a kid and I was pastoring, and I was a kid, I was 25. It has to be between 25 and 27. I had a full head of hair, it was all dark, <laughs> and I had the love of Jesus on my face. <laughs> and my wife had all dark hair, and she looked like a kid. Well, that country church, they were crazy enough to call me, and I was crazy enough to accept. A great learning experience. But I really did have people who did think and because of the way the previous pastor talked, that God directly spoke to him. That is not the case in our dispensation. God speaks through his word. The point of being in a class like this is for us to get to understand the word of God better. So we can grow in grace. But the landscape's just different, and we need to view it as such, because I did set some people, I mean kindly, you know, I try to clarify things with people through the years. I've just tried to avoid giving the term called. So when I go to a church, they, they don't have a mystical idea. So anyway, uh, I can tell you some interesting stories about that. But nevertheless, that, that's, that's an illusion. However, Hosea was called. Amos didn't want to be a prophet. In fact, you know, he was out there you know, shepherding sheep. And God directly called him. He did have a real call. And then he went out and he proclaimed what God told him to say. So we'll see that with the prophet. So anyway, going back to my statement, in light of this, we can find a prophet as one who spoke to him. As such, he is called by God. And what I mean by that, he was directly called by God and is a recipient of special revelation. God, through, through visions, dreams, whatever means, he gave them special revelation. 
See, that's different because our special revelation comes from the Bible. Where there's, God was actually giving them messages that they communicated. And in many cases, that then became written down, we call it scripturated. And it's in our canon today. So when we're looking to hear a word from God, we go to the scriptures. And so that would be a difference. They received the special revelation, wrote it down, and we have it in our Bibles today. So in representing God, the prophet authoritatively and accurately communicates God's message. He does it authoritatively because God spoke to him. He does it accurately. If he doesn't, he could lose his life over it. So that would happen, but the true prophet did authoritatively and accurately communicate God's message. So that's the prophet. He's God's spokesman. Now tonight we want to look at the function of the prophets. How do they function? I think this is where we left off last week. So there's a threefold function of the prophets that assist in understanding the direction of their ministry. Number one, the prophets were enforcers of the covenant. Notice, it wasn't always about just telling future things. It's about enforcing. When I think of an enforcer, I think of Clint Eastwood. <laughs> However, these were godly men. Clint is not. I hate the rough one in your feathers. These were men of God. And they would proclaim, thus saith the Lord. Now, quite often in enforcing them, they're reminding them what God had said through Moses. In fact, so that we can see that, let's take our Bibles and turn back to Deuteronomy 28. It's probably good to sample what they had to do, what they had to proclaim. Notice Deuteronomy 28. Notice in my Bible, I have the 1984 NIV. It says, Blessings for Obedience. If you drop down to verse 15, I have a heading that says, Curses for Disobedience. Now, whether you have it there or not, when you read it, the first 15 verses, or first 14 verses, you'll see the Blessings for Obedience. Look at some of these. He says, verse 1, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all His commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Notice the blessings. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. Now the word blessed just means enriched. So God was going to enrich them in the city and in the country. Notice, the fruit of your womb will be blessed. That will be enriched. You'll have a lot of children. And the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. I'd like that to be true for me. 
but I don't live under this covenant. Now here they're going to get a lot of physical blessings, but it's in the New Testament, there's only one place I see where there's an implication of physical concern. Was it Second or Third John? Or John prays that uh, he'll be as rich as his soul is, or something. Well, he's making a distinction there between what he is spiritually, and also a certain level of being able to take care of himself. But that's the only passage I can think of, friends. For us, we get enriched, we grow in grace, we have the fruit of the Spirit, we develop in doctrinal purity, moral righteousness. That's how we're blessed. And I would, you know, to me, if we could see the fruit of the Spirit manifested in all believers' lives, this would be a this would be a wonderful thing. So, but that's what we're growing in. We call this perseverance of the saints. We persevere because God's preserving us. But perseverance is a, is a good doctrine. It puts the emphasis that we have to do something. We don't give up and just let God do it. We have to struggle against the flesh. We have to struggle to be better spouses. We have to struggle to be better church members. Uh, those things have always been struggles. It's hard to get two people that fully agree. Uh, my wife and I have been married 40 years, and you think she just still learn to agree with me. <laughs> she has But I think she thinks the same way about me. But like I tell her. Remember what the Bible says? She says, the Bible has nothing to do with this. <laughs> so anyway, uh, she may be here with me next week. She's in Arizona right now. So don't say anything to her about that. <laughs> that was pretty in slip. Don't let her listen to the recording. <laughs> but, no, I, I've got a very good wife. Let me cease with that. <laughs> so, notice here verse 7. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise against you, you will, the Lord will grant that the enemies who rise against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he's given. The Lord will establish you as his holy people as he promised you on earth. If you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, then all the peoples on the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground, in the land he swore to your fathers to give you. You know Planned Parenthood was in the Old Testament? The more the merrier. Seriously. You don't hear of anything like in our American culture. Now, we only have three children. So, I mean, we control things. I have to do CHD work. I understand the realities of life. But, you know, in a sense, as I've gotten older, I think 
everybody, we have more. Well, I think after the third one, my wife couldn't have anymore. Uh, she was beat up pretty bad. My wife's not a real big woman, but my son Bob was 10 pounds, and Joshua was just under 10 pounds. And she, her doctor said, her body can't take anymore. Well, we could have little babies. That would, might have been different. But we had big babies. We're still big babies. So, I mean, that's just the reality. But seriously, sometimes we look at a scant of people who have larger families. We shouldn't do that. You know, they, they do think it's in the Bible that they have larger families. And I think I can give them some reasons why that's not a mandate for us. But they've got to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. All I know is that they're going to rue the day when all those kids start driving with the insurance, the wrecks. That's a different story. But you don't think that way when they're young and cute. You think everything will be nice. Well, in our culture, everything doesn't turn out nice. All our children were in car accidents before they, well, they were still in our house. It's the nature of life in Detroit. Thank God they won't kill. Uh, but our culture's different. I can explain why I think there is a place to take into account for having smaller families. But I know some very good Christian people that believe in large families, and uh, they point to the Bible. So I just say, yeah, God bless you. Just hope you're able to afford it. And things like that. But nevertheless, for an Israelite, that wasn't even on the radar screen. If they didn't have children, they thought something was wrong. So, this is what he promised. And in general, they had larger families. Notice verse 12. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season, and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. I wish we were in that boat. The Lord will make you head, not to tell. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I gave you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today, to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. Well, those are the blessings. Now, a prophet did sometimes pronounce positive prophecies that were coordinate with these blessings. However, look at the remainder of the chapter. From verses 15 down to verse 68. You know, look what he says here. If you do not obey, verse 15, the Lord your God, and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of the womb will be cursed, and the crops of your land, and the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send you curses on 
confusion and rebuke and everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. And he goes on. And notice how he itemized this. This, this was a major thing. Well, I could say more, but you can read the rest of the, ch the chapter. There's a lot of curses there for disobedience. So the covenant enforcer, you know what he did a lot of times? Reminding those people they were being judged because they had disobeyed what God had said here. Deuteronomy proffers what we refer to as the Mosaic Covenant, the Deuteronomy Covenant. Uh, this is kind of like the Constitution for Israel. God maps out what he's going to do for them if they're obedient. He sets up regulations for worship, regulations for taking care of people when they become unclean. So we've got an uh, entire book with that stuff in it. That's what Israel followed, and that's what we call the Mosaic Covenant. So I will use the term many times in the Minor Prophets, because the prophets are covenant enforcers. They remind the people that they brought the judgment on by disobeying God. So it's a somber thing. Well, I could say more about that, but I think you've got the drift there. So as covenant enforcers, their plea was not strictly for a legalistic obedience to the covenant, but a call to fear God that would result in faithful obedience to the covenant. And by the way, the other place somebody can genuinely have a proper sense of fear of God, reverence, I, I think it's a little bit more than reverence, though. We should tremble before God. But we have a right relationship, so it's a trembling with joy. But with this, with this fear, it's genuine only when they've been regenerated. They've been saved. God's Spirit has to draw. He gives them new life. They repent and believe. Those are the only people who can really fear God. Now, some may really fear God in the sense of dread. But the way it's used for Israel is often is talking about a relationship with God. The one where they submit before. And so that's, that was what the prophet was called to do. And if we're regenerated, you know, we will grow. By the way, we all have setbacks. The Christian growth rate is not just a steady up. I always think of more as kind of a uh, staircase. So my staircase has had some holes in it. And I've stepped in them in my lifetime. And I probably still will, and you will. But the big difference is that when we do sin, we repent and believe. In fact, I always tell my seminary students, I continue the Christian life just like I began it. I repented and I believed. And you know, tonight I repented and believed again. Think about it all the time. Well, my faith is in God. And I rejoice that he's, he's, He does that in me. So we will have setbacks. But it will be a steady climb. In fact, when we get to Jonah, you all love Jonah. He's a prophet everybody loves. Because he's pretty disobedient. 
and yet we know he's a believer. And yet God showed a revelation for him, like he does with us. So, anyway, we grow in grace. God expected the Israelites to grow in grace. But notice, not only the covenant enforcers, number one, but number two, as recipients of special revelations, the prophets announced coming judgment and salvation. We saw that in Deuteronomy. Although the prophets spoke primarily to the people of their own day, their divinely inspired messages, often springing out of the historical situation in which they lived, there was nevertheless a predictive element pervading their messages. The prediction of the future was never merely to demonstrate that God knows the future, not to satisfy man's curiosity, but there was always a definite, purposeful revelation in connection with the prophecy. Predictive prophecy was concerned with judgment, salvation, the Messiah, and his kingdom. That's the point. So, let me just pause here for a moment. Every prophet had to make some short-term predictions. Isaiah makes some short-term predictions. There's got to be fruit of that. If not, they're not a true prophet. But also, some of the prophets will have more distant prophecy. So they're being evaluated on what they could see immediately. But the Israelites recognized there were some things that were distant in the future. But it always had to be balanced out by the immediate prophecies. Because if not, they'd be stoned. So and I mean by stone, you know, real rocks. So they all had to give some prophecies. However, their ministry, as I said, is not confined to that. There's more things, such as enforcing the covenant. So number three, the prophets were also watchmen over Israel and its leaders. As guardians of their Mosaic constitution, Deuteronomy, they were guardians over the truth upon which the theocratic nation was based. In calling Israel to obey the law, they warned them of certain judgment if they disobeyed. In this regard, the prophets served as royal diplomats who functioned like lawyers, indicting Israel on the Lord's behalf. As such, we see prophets confronting kings and leaders. I think the one we're probably all familiar with know anything about the Bible is Elijah. You know, what a bold man. And yet, he'd step up right up to the place and he'd proclaim just what God said it. And he was fighting against the apostasy. So, what did they want to do? They wanted to kill him. But nevertheless, God showed he was on his side. So the point is, that's part of their job. So those are three functions of the prophets. Now before we move on, is there any questions about that? By the way, just feel free to speak up. You don't have to raise your hand, just say something. Uh, you know, I've got on the eye, the raising of hands creates formality. You don't have to worry about that. So you can do anything, just don't 
tackle me or anything like that. <laughs> you might be disappointed how weak I am. <laughs> okay, well, number three here. Not only have we defined the prophet, we want to have a, an overview of the minor prophets. Here, we can see that there are four key things that are generally given in most of the minor prophets. So look at these major things. Number one, the prophets exposed Israel's covenant violations or sinful practices. I think you've already got that point where we're going through them being enforcers of the covenant. Rather than telling Israel what they want to hear, the prophets who are generally called of God to serve as watchmen authoritatively expose them. So when I draw a parallel, I think pastors need to do that, but I had a friend when I pastored. He was about 10 years older than me, and more like probably 12 or 13. And I had a country church, he had a country church in my area, and he was going to Grace Theological Seminary like I was. I was working on my second master's degree. So we'd drive in together, but... He took this thing of the prophets real seriously. He blinded it himself. Man, he could lay people out. I've never... He's good for about three years in the church. So we're driving into school one day, and he said, Well, I fired my deacons on Sunday. I told the church. Well, I'm sorry, he, he left one stay because he's on the pastor's side. These guys are going to show up for the deacons meeting, and so and so and I, we're not going to be there. And then about a month later, he had a Sunday school teacher that would leave right after Sunday school and go home and never come to any of the other services. And he told the church, he said, Mrs. So and so, she's going to be surprised next week because my wife's going to be in her Sunday school class. And I say, I didn't think that was the way to do things. <laughs> Further, does the pastor really have that much power? I mean, it's a little scary. So his deacons typically would rise up and he would, he would go to another church. But he was authoritative. And he was afraid of nobody. Well, you know, I don't think Pastor Ken's afraid of anything. He knows how to handle people. So there is something in a pastor to know how to work with people and to just, you know, publicly embarrass somebody like that. I just think it's tacky myself. So I wouldn't do it and I encourage our seminary students not to do it, but occasionally I hear some of them be like that. Well, I don't endorse it. I would think we're trying to train men who are more like Pastor Ken to show the work of grace in their lives, you know, love the people of God, preach the word. But whatever else, he's not afraid to speak up. He does it in a kind way. But, you know, he's not a timid soul. Well, that's more a prototype for a pastor. So you'll hear these people sometimes harken back on the prophetic model. I always have some red flags go up when I hear that. Are they getting special revelation? Are they real bombastic? 
and acting like my friend did. And by the way, he is a good friend. I mean, it's amazing. I never liked his tactics too well, but when it came to other things in life, you know, we've gone to their house and stayed. I've preached at his church before. And, but I can always say, when it's time to move on, <laughs> he's getting a little bit more bold behind the sacred desk. <laughs> so, anyway, I, I hopefully there's some grace with our pastors when they do that. Also, number two, the prophets urge Israel to repent and to trust the God of the covenant nation. We've looked on that, but I'm summarizing everything, and that's where they, they're calling people to genuinely fear God, to obey Him. Number three, the prophet warns Israel coming judgment for consistent sinful living where there is little regard for repentance and the demands of the Holy God. There was no hope for deliverance. For God to avoid judging Israel for sin, for sin, he would be inconsistent with his character. God must condemn the nation if its princes, priests, and people continue to arrogantly reject God's moral and spiritual principles. They are responsible for their disobedience to the covenant commitment of God. Yahweh is the sovereign Lord of history. And the Gentile nations will also be judged if they rebel against his dominion. Everybody gets judged when they disobey God. We follow our nations responsible for a moral code. Uh, every nation, there, there's a basic morality that they're held accountable for. Uh, these things that we hear going on, like the Saddam Hussein and uh, some of these other dictators, uh, even those dictator wannabes, uh, you know, they're violating human rights. There is something to human rights. Uh, if they don't get exceptions, they're okay. And I think in our culture, I think we've defined the ability to get an abortion as a female right. Friends, that's unbiblical. It's ungodly. In fact, I just had a post on the seminary, CBTS, Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. We do a, we, we put a blog post every other day, and I just did one on abortion. Our church historian, uh, soon to be Dr. John Aloisi, he did a post on abortion in church history. That prompted me to put up the first of a two-part series on it. Friends, it's, we may think it's going away, but this is a major, major moral atrocity. And for whoever is in Congress, for whoever is president, to justify it, you don't want to be with them on the judgment seat. At the judgment seat, of course, you won't be there, but you want to want to be there. God will damn them. If there's any consistency to God, I'm sorry, I use the King James word, condemn. My wife, she doesn't like when I use the King James. It's a little too hard of language. <laughs> sorry about that. But it's on tape, so. You bought the Bible, it for you. 
No, it's good for my wife's sanctification, though. <laughs> I know how to get her gander up. <laughs> so, but, anyway, to me, you know, the moral atrocities, according to God's Word, are just terrible. You know, rest assured, there will be a time when there will be homosexual union. I can see it. The younger generation now, they think that everybody should have that right. It's scary. And you look at some of the other things. God help our country. We are in a state of judgment. And we've been in one. And we're just getting deeper and deeper in sin. So, you know, let me encourage you. Make sure you vote and vote for a moral platform. You have to determine how you're going to vote. I can't say that. But you need to determine what are the moral standards and vote for that. I hope we all see that as more important than money. Of course, everybody in this election is a little strong than money. I don't want to care whether you're a bomb or you're Mitt Romney. We're in deep doo-doo. So, you know, it just amazes me. We've had a budget all my life, or all our married life. We go beyond our budget. Something's got to give. We've got to bring back, back in line. I would be bankrupt. And yet we're just living bankrupt. But that's also another moral atrocity. Now, how we could get so much money from the Chinese? They own us, friends. Now, they need us, and that's a good thing. But you're always beholding to the lender. Always. That's why it's good to buy with as much cash as you can. I haven't practiced that. But you always need to make sure you can pay it off and have some type of background to do it. When we're younger, that's harder. At this point in life, it's, it's easier. But we just don't think of those terms. So we have a lot of moral issues. Just, just think of China. The moral atrocities there. You look across the board. Is there any nation that is against abortion? I don't know. But that is a moral atrocity. It's, it's just, I don't cry about it when I think about it. I get close to it. Some baby, babies are being aborted right now. When you think about that, that's overwhelming. So we have moral issues. They're, they're basic human rights that are defined by the Bible. It is not what a government necessarily defines as. But they are biblical. Well, I can get carried away because I'm sort of doing this post on abortion. It's, it's, it's depressing, friends. I, I thank God because I've known some women who've had abortions. God saved them. We thank God for grace. But there's, there's always a sense of loss. 
So that's that's a major thing. We should be reaching people who have abortions. The gospel's for sinners. The gospel's for me, the gospel's for you. So that's the point of it. And those are the issues that we deal with. With Israel, they had to deal with the Mosaic Covenant, so they had more. But we're not God's holy nation. They were. And so they had a higher standard. Well, notice here finally, the prophet predicts that there is a coming Messiah who will rule in a messianic kingdom. God is moving history toward the goal of establishing his kingdom on earth where Jesus Christ will rule. God's goal is absolute and he is sovereignly, sovereignly moving all things to a consummation in the messianic age. His name will be honored and his voice obeyed by all people of the earth. Biblical prophecy is unique because of its clarity and specific fulfillment. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies were precisely fulfilled by the Messiah in his first advent. And over 400 more prophecies remain to be fulfilled when he comes again. Friends, I hope our hearts are set on looking for Jesus Christ to return in the rapture. It can have a purifying influence. But, you know, when I was younger, when I was first a Christian, prophecy was a big deal back then. You know, I was, I was a Freudian psychology major reading books on prophecy. I didn't realize the two don't mix. Well, I got out of that. You know, I graduated with a degree in psychology, but you'd never know today because I went to seminary. <laughs> Occasionally, when one of my students is found out, they're always shocked. I said, you don't seem like you would have been the counseling type. I said, I am. I'm more than the dead. <laughs> but anyway, seminary helped me and developed me theologically where I see you know, a lot of Freudian psychology was just his wickedness. He was a wicked man. And yet, that's the base for so many forms of counseling today. It's sad. Well, in the Messianic age, there will be a dictator. It will be Jesus Christ. And he will speak authority, authoritatively, and he will speak quickly. And when you get on his bad side, you'll never get over it. So now I assume for believers who get our glorified bodies, that's a different story. Our desires will be completely different. No beyond God, we will see fruit of the Spirit. But there will be unbelievers born in the millennial age. And they will have to face His judgment when they disobey. So I'm looking for King Jesus myself. And I think we all should. <coughs> well, may I make a, a practical application to you? when I think of the prophets and I think of them foretelling the future this really points that we have a sovereign God if God did not can I use the term foreordain everything how can he tell those prophets about future things 
Was it just a guess? We don't know what comes past. They're able to receive messages from God because God knew it all because He ordained it all. He's just giving them a little bit of the future picture. But that's one of the most practical doctrines in all the Bible. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good. What's that? King James. And God causes everything to work together for good. That might be a McCabe translation. <laughs> to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. I'll never forget last year, I think it was early September when I went to my urologist and I had my annual prostate exam. And I'll never forget Says Bob, there's a nodule here. Did you have a nodule last year? And I said, if I w if you would have said it, I'd remember that. So he gets his record just to double check, and there wasn't any. So I have to get the biopsy and things like that. And you know, I'm thinking, well, a lot of people don't have cancer when they have a biopsy. And I think the odds are good that I won't have it. I'll never forget it, 12.30 of Sunday afternoon. You know, he told me he'd call me on Monday. So my wife answers the phone. And she says, it's Dr. Solomon. And he said, I had cancer. In fact, I had five spots of cancer. Now, I, there's two things, two thoughts that I immediately had on the phone. God is sovereign, and He's going to use this to help me be conformed to the image of the Son. Friends, that's how the sovereignty of God's helpful. But even if it would have been somewhere else, I would have been with the Lord. And that's better off, friends. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. See, our desires will be on Christ. I won't be worried about my wife, won't be worried about my children, won't be worried about my grandchildren. I'll be overwhelmed that I'm with Christ. And friends, the thought of that is just overwhelming. So there's practical value to the sovereignty of God. And that's how it helped me there. By the way, I also thought another thing. You're going to get cancer, prostate cancer is the best form to get. Now, I've known some people where they did get checked and then metastasized and they did die. That can't happen. But one of the reasons why I always got an annual exam is because the former president of the Detroit Baptist Seminary, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer when he was 54. You know, I remember thinking when Dr. McCune was diagnosed with it. And then he had a surgery and he ended up doing well. I said, well, he won't have to worry about cancer again. And then he had cancer in his intestines. But he survived that. He's still alive. I'm 63, so he's got to be 78. So, you know, God's providence, he was good. But we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that God will not be good, even if he took me 
for him to be with the Lord. Friends, that will be the glory. It's hard because we just read about it, we don't know. But all the descriptions in the Bible, it's a place of joy and bliss. So, the sovereignty of God is very practical. So I hope you'll embrace that. Well, that's, that's one application. So think about that. And it's a truth that I've used all my life, ever since I became a Christian and first memorized Romans 8.28. I memorized it in King James, and still can talk to King James, though I've tried to memorize verses in my NIV. In fact, I was on a trip where we'd go teach Chinese house church leaders, <coughs> and uh, we went to this island. So I'm on, my, on our way back, and we've got to fly to Japan. And this, we hit this wicked storm. And I remember, we're going up and down. We had a few big drops. So I'm quoting Psalm 23. I'd memorized it in the NIV, but you know what it came out as? The King James Version. But, but you know, the King James Version is pretty clear too. So. so that song stuck with me all my life. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the Ten Commandments went again. I had to memorize them to get a Bible when I was in church when I was a little kid. Those stuff with me. That was very bad. <laughs> so, biblical truth is good, but, you know, my stress is the sovereignty of God, we think of it as a distant thing. But, friends, it's very practical. And it will reassure us. Well, let's look at then at the summary of the message for each minor prophet. What I've tried to do, I've tried to go through all the minor prophets and reduce their message to one sentence or two. So, for example, I say with Hosea, he prophesies to Israel. He exposes Israel's sin along with its consequential judgment and prophecies about God's restoration of his wayward nation. Now, flip over to the next page. Or, I'm sorry, to page 8. I don't fully expand on what I say with the message of the book. So what this is on page 6 and 7 for each message, it's a nutshell of their message. I will expand that, and uh, I'll be giving you additional notes as we go through this, because there's, there's a lot to say about it. I have to be careful on how far I go, because there's a lot to be said. So, you can read all that, but let's move over to Hosea on page 7. Let's look at the title and authorship. That's pretty easy with Hosea. We, we immediately see the author in verse 1 of the book. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea son of Bereed, during the reigns of Uzziah, etc. So the word of the Lord comes to Hosea. In fact, the names of each book in the Minor Prophets are found in the first verse. We'll have the prophet's name. And by the way, 
we have an indication of the time period. We don't have a date specified here. But when you put all that evidence together, it gives us something about the date. So here, notice Hosea's mean, name means salvation. That's a wonderful name for a prophet. He received the visions described in the book and subsequently placed them in written form. So the name Hosea, I don't know that we always think when we name our kids some type of biblical significance. My son Bob, and I'm not sure what prophet means, it probably means something good. I don't know. It may be something bad. I'll name Robert because my dad was Robert. And there was a Robert before us. So this was Robert's throughout our family line that goes back to Scotland. So it was a prominent name. Somewhere along the line, my middle name stands. Somebody married, some gal married somebody with the last name Vance. Time goes on, and that gets named Robert Vance McCabe. He names me Robert Vance McCabe Jr. My son Bob is Robert Vance McCabe III. God has not blessed us with a grandson, so I think the name's going to die. I was praying for a grandson, but his wife, she got hurt pretty bad with the last baby, so their days are over. So there won't be a Robert Vance McCabe before. Well, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I don't care. As long as we pray that our granddaughters turn out to be godly women, they can't guarantee that. You can just teach them the word. Only God regenerates. But you pray for that. Everybody praying for the grandchildren for the same thing. What kind of grandparents would we be if we didn't? <laughs> But we'll name our kids a significant name. Oh. You know, we named our son Joshua. We couldn't come up with a middle name when we were in the hospital. And his middle name ended up as Jay. I wanted it to be Joshua Elijah. My wife would have no part with that. So we were going back and forth, and they're getting ready to release, or we got to put something down. We could have just had Joshua. So we put down. Joshua J. So, you know, when I was, when my son was young, he used to say, well, Daddy, when are you going to preach from Joshua? He says, that book's got a great name. It's my name. And I remember he was in grade school, and I said, Joshua, I'm going to preach on Joshua. Will you live up to the name? Well, I haven't preached on the book yet. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a lot of times these significance in their names. I think this probably is more a reflection of parents. Not so much that they knew that their kids were going to be believers. But it was a reflection of their faith. And this says something about their faith. So that's his name. It means salvation. Uh, we could look at the date and setting, but we probably ought to stop here because I'll go more than a couple minutes. And uh, I think we're supposed to be done today, Christine? Yes, that's correct. Oh, you talked about an authoritative voice. <laughs> I got the drift, Ken. Well, anyway... Uh, but I don't mind staying here a half hour, 40 minutes. <laughs> We're not going to do that. We'll just pick up next week. Anyway, thanks for your attention. and glad to have you here tonight. Thank you, Bob.
same time, same place. But a week later.